On today's episode, we will be covering the five disappearances of Richie Edwards, Etten Kalili Pats, Benjamin Bathurst, Manuela Orlandi, and Joseph Force Carter. After these, you'll be left thinking, that's for sure. But first, hello and welcome to the Murder House Radio Show. I'm your host, X. On this show, we will be covering serial killers, killers, mass shooters, disappearances, true crime, and the most deplorable things and people in history. All that good dark stuff. The Murder House Radio Show will be a radio show slash podcast. I'll be uploading videos every Friday at 4pm Mountain Standard Time. Make sure you hit the like and subscribe button. Once you hit the subscribe button, hit the bell notification button and select all to get all notifications if you are viewing on YouTube. Hit the follow button if you are listening on a podcasting platform. So sit down, get comfortable, grab some coffee or whatever your preferred beverage is, turn off the lights, and enjoy the show. Richard James Edwards, born December 22, 1967, disappeared on the 1st of February, 1995. Also known as Richie James, or Richie Manick, was a Welsh musician who was a lyricist and rhythm guitarist for an alternative rock band, Maniac Street Preachers. He was known for his dark politicized and intellectual songwriting, which combined with an enigmatic and eloquent character, has assured his cult status. He has been cited as lead lyricist of his generation, leading the cool Simmer movement. Edwards was born and raised in Blackwood, Wales. To Graham and Sherry Edwards, he had one younger sister, Rachel, with whom he was very close with. Edwards attended Oakdale Comprehensive School from 1986 to 1989. He attended University of Wales, Swansea, and graduated with a 2-1 degree in political history. The Edwards family lived in Blackwood. He met Nicky Wire, Sean Moore, and James Dean Bradfield at Oakdale Comprehensive School, his bandmates. Edwards was initially a driver and roadie for Maniac Street Preachers. He was accepted as the band's main spokesman and fourth member in 1989. Although he showed little musical talent, his real contribution to the band was in their lyrics and design. He frequently mimed playing the guitar during early live performances and accordingly only played on two songs during the Maniac Street Preacher's studio career. But was along the bassist Nick Wire, principal lyricist. Edwards is said to have written approximately 80% of the lyrics on their third album, The Holy Bible, 
Both are cited on all songs written before Edward's disappearance, with Edwards receiving sole credit on these tracks from the 1996 album Everything Must Go and co-writing credits on another two. Edwards did have severe depression and was open about it in interviews. He self-harmed mainly through stabbing cigarettes on his arms and cutting himself. He said, when I cut myself, I feel so much better. All the little things that might have been annoying me suddenly seem so trivial because I'm concentrating on the pain. I'm not a person who can scream and shout, so this is my only outlet. It's all done very logically. That's stark and sad. Definitely a troubled individual. On the 15th of May, 1991, after a gig at the Norwich Arts Centre, journalist Steve Lamech questioned how serious Edwards was about his art. Edwards responded by carving the words for real into his forearm with a razor blade. The injury required 18 stitches. That's hardcore. He also had insomnia and used alcohol to help him sleep during the night. Before the release of the Holy Bible in 1994, he checked into the Witchert Hospital and later the Priory Hospital, missing out on some of the promotional work for the album and forcing the band to appear as a three-piece at the Reading Festival at the Tea in the Park. Following his release from the Priory in September, Manic Street Preachers toured Europe with Sudi and Therapy for what would be their last time. Edward's final live appearance was at the London Astria on the 21st of December 1994. The concert ended with the band smashing their equipment and damaging the light system, prompted by Edward's violent destruction of his guitars. The end of the set closure, You Love Us. On the 23rd of January, 1995, Edwards gave his last interview to Japanese music magazine Life. On the 1st of February, 1995, on the day he and Bradfield were due to fly to the United States on a promotional tour of the Holy Bible, in the two weeks before his disappearance, Edwards withdrew 200 pounds a day from his bank account, which totaled 2,800 pounds by the day of his scheduled flight. It is not known if he intended to spend the cash during the U.S. tour or whether it was part of a plan to disappear. It was also said that the money could be uh, spent for a desk but there is no record of the desk ever being paid for. According to Emma Forrest, as quoted in a version of Reason, the night before he disappeared, Edwards gave a friend a book called Novel with Cocaine, instructing her to read the introduction, which detailed the author staying in a mental asylum before vanishing. That's interesting. While staying at the Embassy Hotel in Baystor Road, London, according to Rob Jovanic's biography, Edwards removed some books and videos from his bag. Among them was a copy of the play, Acoos. Edwards placed them in a box with a note that said, I love you, 
wrapped the box like a birthday present and decorated it with collages and literary quotations, including a picture of Germanic-looking house and Bugs Bunny. The package was addressed to Edward's on-and-off girlfriend, Joe, whom he'd met some years before, although they had split a few weeks before. The next morning, Edwards collected his wallet, car keys, some Prozac, and his passport. He reportedly checked out of the hotel at 7 a.m., leaving his toiletries, pack suitcase, and some of his Prozac. He then drove up to his flat in Cardiff, leaving behind his passport, his Prozac, and Severn Bridge toll booth receipt. In the two weeks that followed, Edwards was apparently spotted in Newport Passport Office and at the Newport bus station by a fan who was unaware that he was missing. The fan was reported to have discussed a mutual friend, Laurie Fiddler, before Edwards departed. Mm, damn. So far, it's sounding like he wants to disappear. This timeline has been dissected and turned on its head due to the assumption made over the toll booth ticket found from the Servan Bridge. It had been assumed that 2.55 on the ticket was 2.55 p.m., but in 2018, the original software engineer of the bridge was located and he confirmed the software was printed out the 24-hour clock on the 24-hour clock, meaning Edwards passed this location at 2.55 a.m. Therefore, the timeline of events and subsequent appeals for information were no longer valid. On the 7th of February, a taxi driver from Newport supposedly picked up Edwards from the King's Hotel and drove him around the valleys, including Edwards' hometown of Blackwood. The driver reported that the passenger had spoken in cock in a cockney accent, which occasionally slipped into a Welsh one. Oh, so maybe masking his identity. And that he had asked if he could lie down on the back seat. Eventually they reached Blackwood and the bus station, but the passenger reportedly said this is not the place and asked to be taken to Pontany Pool Railway Station. It was later ascertained, according to Genovac's account, that Pontypool did not have a telephone. The passenger got out at the Servanview service station near Ost, South Glocenshire, and paid the $68 or pound fare in cash. On the 14th of February, Edwards Vauxhall Carolier received a parking ticket at the Servanview service station. On the 17th of February, the vehicle was reported as abandoned. Police discovered the battery to be dead, with evidence that the car had been lived in. The car also had photos he had taken of his family days prior. Due to the service station's proximity to Servan Bridge, a known suicide site, it was widely believed that Edwards had jumped from the bridge. Well, from what I read earlier, it's um, not surprising. Tragic, but not surprising. Many people who knew Edwards, however, have said that he was never the type to contemplate suicide. 
And he himself was quoted in 1994 as saying, in terms of the S word, that does not enter my mind. And I've never, and it never has. In terms of an attempt, because I am stronger than that. I might be a weak person, but I can take pain. However, since this, Edwards has reportedly been spotted in a market in Goa, also in India and on an island of Furtaventura and Lanzorti. There have been other alleged sightings of Edwards, especially in the years immediately following his disappearance. However, none of these have proven conclusive, and none of them have been confirmed by investigators. In 2018, it was revealed that the bridge's toll receipt was time-stamped with a 24-hour clock, meaning he would have crossed the bridge at 2.55 a.m. rather than 2.55 p.m. as previously thought for 25 years. The investigation itself has received criticism. In his 1999 book, Everything, a book about manic street preachers, Simon Price states that aspects of the investigation were far from satisfactory. He asserts the police may not have taken Edwards' mental state into account when prioritizing his disappearance, and also records of Edwards' sister Rachel as having hit out at police handling after CCTV footage was analyzed two years after Edwards vanished. Price records a member of the investigation team is stating that the idea that you could identify somebody from that is an errant nonsense. But yeah, if you ask me, I think he may have uh, did the deed. But if he um, did, I guess his body would have washed up somewhere if it was into water. But he could have also faked his death. You never know. What do you guys think? Eaton Khalil Pats was a six-year-old American boy on May 25th, 1979, when he disappeared on his way to his school bus stop at Soho neighborhood of Lower Manhattan. His disappearance helped launch a missing children's movement, which included new legislation and new methods for tracking down missing children. Several years after he disappeared, Pat's was one of the first children to be profiled on the photo on a milk carton campaigns of the early 1980s. In 1983, President Ronald Reagan actually designated May 25th, the anniversary of Etten's disappearance, as National Missing Children's Day in America. On the morning of May 25th, 1979, Etten left his Soho apartment at 113 Prince Street by himself for the first time. Planning to walk two blocks to board a school bus at West Broadway in Prince Street, he was wearing a black Future Fight Captain pilot cap, a blue corduroy jacket, blue jeans, and blue sneakers with fluorescent stripes he never got on the bus at school etten's teacher noticed his absence but did not report it to the principal 
When Etten did not return home after school, his mother, Julie, called the police. At first, detectives considered Pratt's to be possible suspects, but quickly determined they had no involvement. An intense search began that evening, using nearly a hundred police officers and a team of bloodhounds. The search continued for weeks. Neighbors and police canvassed the city and placed missing child's posters featuring Etten's portrait, but this resulted in few leads. Etten's father, Stanley, was a professional photographer and had a collection of photographs he had taken of his son. His photos of Etten were printed on countless missing child's posters and milk cartons. They were also projected on screens in Times Square. Decades later, it was determined that Pats had been abducted and murdered the same day that he went missing. The case was reopened in 2010 by the Manhattan District's Attorney's Office. The FBI excavated the basement of the alleged crime scene near Pats' residence but discovered no new evidence. Pedro Hernandez, a suspect who confessed, was charged and indicted later that year on charges of second-degree murder and first-degree kidnapping. In 2014, the case went through a series of hearings to determine whether or not Hernandez's statements before he received his Miranda rights were legally admissible at trial. His trial began in January 2015 and it ended with a mistrial in May when one of the 12 jurors held out. The retrial began on the 19th of October 2016 and it was concluded on the 14th of February 2017 after nine days of deliberations when the jury found Hernandez guilty of murder and kidnapping. Hernandez was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison on the 18th of April, 2017. He will not be eligible for parole for 25 years. In 2012, Joe Lopez, a man from New Jersey, reached out to investigators because he believed that Hernandez, Lopez's brother-in-law, was responsible for Etten's disappearance. Statements by Hernandez's sister, Nina Hernandez, and Thomas Rivera, leader of charismatic Christian group St. Anthony of Puda, a Roman Catholic church in Camden, New Jersey, indicated that Hernandez may have publicly confessed in the presence of fellow parishers in the early 1980s to having murdered Etten. According to Hernandez's sister, it was an open family secret that he had confessed in the church. So, I guess this case is technically solved, but the boy is still missing. Could this be his killer? What do you guys think? Or do you think it's just a very mentally disturbed person taking the blame for... Or taking the credit, I should say, for what this would be a heinous deed? What are your guys' thoughts? Benjamin Bathurst, born March 18, 1784, was a British diplomat who disappeared in Prussia during the Napoleonic Wars. 
He was the third son of Henry Bathurst, Bishop of Norwich, and his sister was poet Caroline de Crest Pigny. Bathurst's disappearance in 1809 sparked much debate and speculation about his ultimate fate. His story is frequently used in science fiction stories based on a widespread belief that his disappearance was practically sudden, perhaps supernatural in nature. Modern research suggests the circumstances of Bathurst's disappearance were widely embellished and that he was almost certainly murdered. On the 25th of November, 1809, Bathurst and his courier, Hurry Curls, by chassis under the aliases of Brandon de Coach and Fisher, respectively stopped at a town of Plegberg, west of Berlin. After ordering fresh horses at the post house, Bathurst and Kroos walked to a nearby inn at the White Swan. After ordering an early dinner, Bathurst is said to have spent several hours writing in a small room set aside for him in the inn. The traveler's departure was delayed, and it was not until 9 p.m. that they were told that the horses were about to be harnessed to the carriers. Bathurst immediately left his room, followed shortly after by his companion, who was surprised to find Bathurst was not in the chassis when he reached it, and indeed was nowhere to be found. Bathurst's disappearance did not create much excitement at the time, since Prussia was entombed with bandits, stranglers from the Napoleon's army, and German revolutionaries. Additionally, Murderers and robberies were so common that the loss of one's commercial traveler, which Bathurst was traveling as, was barely noticed, especially since, at the time, there was hardly any legal authorities in Prussia. News of the disappearance did not reach England for some weeks. After Kirst had managed to board a ship in Hamburg in December Bathurst's father, Henry Bathurst, Bishop of Norwich, received a summons from the Foreign Secretary, Richard Wesley, to attend him at Apsley House, where Wesley informed the Bishop of his son's disappearance. Bathurst's wife immediately left for Prussia to search for her husband, accompanied by an explorer, Heinrich Rokenton. They arrived at Plegberg to find the authorities had been looking into the affair and that Captain von Kiltzing had been put in charge of the investigation. After Kiltzing was notified of Bathurst's disappearance, he took immediate steps to mobilize his troops and conduct a vigorous search, allegedly working on, initial, on the initial assumption that the missing man had vanished of his own accord. On the 26th of November, the river Spetzel was drained and civilian officials ordered a second search of the village. The following day, Bathurst's valuable fur coat worth two or three hundred Prussian thurls was discovered hidden in an outhouse owned by a family named Schmidt. Then, on the 16th of December, two old women 
who are out scavenging in the woods near Quitzel, three miles north of Plegberg, came across Bathurst's pantaloons, his pants. Investigations quickly revealed that one August Schmidt had been working as hostler in the courtyard of White Swan on the night of Bathurst's disappearance. His mother, who also worked at the inn, had taken Englishman's coat. Frau Kirsten, a woman employed at the German coffee house, testified years later that immediately after Bathurst had vanished the establishment, August had come in, asked her where the visitor had gone, then hastened after him, and she supposed taken some opportunity to kill him. A reward of 500 thirshels was offered for any news, and money was paid to members of the local police to expedite matters. This, however, caused the waters to be muddied, as the false reports and offers of information were made by people seeking a share of the reward. In March, Felida had the entire area of Plegberg searched at, va at a vast expense, which included the use of trained dogs, but her efforts were in vain. She then traveled to Berlin, then Paris, under specific safe conduct, which Britain and France were then at war, to see Napoleon Bonaparte himself, hoping to obtain from him some account of her husband's fate. On April 15, 1852, during the demolition of a house near Plegberg, located 300 paces from the White Swan, a skeleton was discovered under the threshold of the stable. The back of the skull showed a fracture as though from a blow from a heavy object. All of the upper teeth were perfect, but one of the lower molars showed signs of having been removed by a dentist. The owner of the house, a stonemason named Kesawatir, had purchased the house in 1834 from Christian merchants who had been serving men at the White Swan during the period when Bathurst disappeared. Bathurst's sister traveled to Pledgeburg but could not conclusively say whether or not the skull belonged to her brother. So, that is that case. It is technically, well, it is unsolved. And they don't know if the remains are his or not. That's interesting. But vanished into thin air. Like, damn. And they searched thoroughly, so like, I don't even know, man. What do you guys think? Emanuela Orlandi born the 14th of January 1968, was a Vatican teenager who mysteriously disappeared while returning home from a flute lesson in Rome, Italy, on the 22nd of June 1983. Sightings of Orlandi in various places have been reported over the years, including inside Vatican City, but all have been unreliable. Her disappearance led to much speculation on the involvement of international terrorism, Italian organized crime, and a plot inside the Holy See to cover up a sex scandal. Orlandi's family, in particular her brother Petro, 
consistently pressed the Vatican for release of information about the case, believing the Holy See knew more than it admitted. The Vatican always maintained a strict silence about the matter, denying any accusations of involvement. But over the years, many voices from inside the Holy See suggested that someone actually knew what happened to the missing girl. In 2023, 40 years after her disappearance, the Vatican opened an official investigation for the first time at the behest of Pope Francis. 40 years later, that's embarrassing, but better late than never, but nonetheless embarrassing. Screams cover up. So, Orlandi usually traveled by bus to the music school located at Pizza di Sant'Apolleri. She would get off after a few stops and walk the last few hundred meters. Upon leaving home around 4 p.m. on the 22nd of June, 1983, Orlandi was late to class and the weather was extremely hot. She asked Pietro to drive her, but he had other commitments. I've gone over it so many times telling myself if I had only accompanied her, maybe it wouldn't have happened. He recalled decades later. Guilt, I know that feeling. At the end of class, Orlandi phoned home and explained to her sister that before the lesson, she had received a job offer from a representative of Avon Products to hand out flyers at a fashion show for 370,000 Liri, around 590 euros for two hours. Frederica told her not to accept the offer, believing the compensation to be excessive and thus unreliable, and suggested discussing the matters with her parents first. While leaving school, Orlandi spoke of the job with two female classmates who then left her at a bus stop in Corso Mesquinero in front of Palanzo Mamanda. She was last seen around 7.30 p.m. at the bus stop in the company of another girl who was never identified. After waiting for her for hours, Orlandi's family began to worry and started looking for her in an area between the Vatican and the music school. They called the director of the music school to ask if any of their daughter's classmates had seen or have any information about her. Her father then went to the police to report her as missing, but they assumed she was just with friends and suggested waiting. Orlandi was officially declared missing the next morning. Over the next two days, announcements of her disappearance was published in the Italian newspapers. At 6 p.m. on the 25th of June, a Saturday, a phone call was received from a young man who claimed to be a 16-year-old boy named Prolargi. He reported that him and his fiancée had met Orlandi in a Plaza Nova that afternoon. The young man mentioned her flute, hair, and a pair of glasses that she did not like to wear, along with other details that fit the missing girl. According to the man, Orlandi had just had a haircut and had introduced herself as Barbarella stating that she had just run away from home and was selling Avano products.
On the 28th of June, a man calling himself Mario phoned the family and claimed to own a bar near Ponette Vituro between the Vatican and the music school. He reported that a new customer, a young girl named Barbara, had confided to him about being a runaway, but said that she would return home from her sister's for her sister's wedding. Two days later, a large number of posters displaying Orlandi's photograph were plastered across Rome. During the Angelus, on the 3rd of July, Pope John Paul II issued an appeal to those responsible for Orlandi's disappearance, making the hypothesis of a kidnapping official for the first time. The Orlandi family soon received the first of a number of anonymous calls, in which they claimed that Emanuela had been taken prisoner by a terrorist group demanding the release of Mahad Ali Agjeka, the Turkish man who shot the Pope in May 1981. No other information was given. Other calls were received in the following days, including one from an anonymous male with an American accent who played a recording of Orlandi's voice over the phone. A few hours later, in another phone call to the Vatican, the same man suggested a prisoner exchange swapping Orlandi for the terrorist. The anonymous caller mentioned Mario and Polergi on the phone calls, identifying them as members of the organization. On the 6th of July, the anonymous man informed the ANSA news agency of the demand for a prisoner exchange, asking for the Pope's participation within 20 days and indicating that the waste basin in the public square near the Italian Parliament would contain proof that Orlandi was indeed in his hands. These were to have been photocopies of her music school ID card, a receipt of tuition, and a note handwritten by the kidnapped girl. On July 8th, a man with an alleged Middle Eastern accent phoned one of the Orlandi's classmates, saying the girl was in his hands and that they wanted 20 days to make the exchange for the terrorist. He also asked for a direct telephone line with Cardinal Agostino Casarilli, the Vatican's Secretary of State. The line was installed on the 18th of July. A total of 16 telephone calls were made by an American from different public phones. On the instructions of the alleged kidnappers, an audio cassette was found near ANSA's office on July 17th which appeared to be a recording of a girl being tortured. Police told the family they did not believe the victim to be Orlandi, although her brother has expressed doubts about this. However, former Diogos agent Antonio Cicero, who first found and, li first found and listened to the cassette, claimed that the recording given to the family and later published was not the original one he found. He claimed that the original was no longer than the published recording, and a male voice could be heard in the background. The presence of a male voice was also reported in the original transcription of the recording made by police immediately after discovery, giving support to the claims that the published recording had been manipulated or faked. On August 4th, 1983, 
ANSA received a written statement from an organization calling itself the Turkish Anti-Christian Turkish Liberation Front, later simply referred to as Turkish, who claimed to be holding Orlandi in exchange for the terrorists mentioned earlier. Turkish sent several letters in total between August 1983 and November 1985. Although they showed no evidence of Orlandi's captivity, Turkish was able to provide many specific details about her private life, even mentioning the number of moles on her back. In October 1983, the group released a statement saying that they were also responsible for the disappearance of Merlia, Georgia, who had gone missing in Rome 40 days before Orlandia. Italian President Sandro Permitti made public made a public appeal for the girls' release on the 20th of October, 1983, linking the two cases in the public's consciousness. Fourteen years later, in 1997, the first investigation on Orlandi's case was dismissed by the public prosecutor of Rome due to lack of new evidence. In 2013, a few days after his election, Pope Francis met the Orlandi family after a mass and told them that Emanuela is in heaven, implying the girl's death. According to the family, this statement was proof the Holy See knew what happened to Orlandi, despite the Vatican's claiming over many years that it was not involved in the matter. The brother asked many times to have a meeting with the Pope in order to ask more information, but the Vatican never replied. So, the Vatican sex theory... In May 2012, exorcist Gabriel Amorth claimed that Orlandi had been kidnapped and murdered by members of the Vatican police after using her for sex parties, and the officials of an unnamed foreign embassy were involved in the conspiracy. This allegation reemerged with the 2016 publication of Otto di Dolori, a book by Italian journalist Tommaso Nelli which contained an exclusive testimony from a friend of Orlandi's who claimed that a week before her disappearance, she confided that she had been molested by someone close to the Pope in the Vatican Gardens on several occasions. An interview with the anonymous woman mentioned in a Netflix documentary miniseries, Vatican Girl, The Disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi, released in October 20. 22. On the 14th of December 2022, Italian journalist Alessandro Ambrosini published an exclusive recording of Marcarello Nori, a man affiliated with De Pedis and Band della Malegna, who implied that Orlandi was kidnapped on the request of someone inside the Vatican for the purpose of covering up a sex scandal. Nori was later interrogated by Italian authorities. A presumed plot between Banda Deli Maliga and the Vatican had already been mentioned back in 2009 by Marzuto Abonito, a Banu boss who had been turned to aiding the justice system. 
Sorry for those horrible pronunciations. I do not speak Italian. But yeah, those are four bizarre disappearances that aren't technically solved. But that last one, that's, defi that's definitely a Vatican cover-up right there. That's, yeah, because, like, you would think the Vatican would do everything they can to help since it's a holy organization, air quotes. But, uh, yeah, what are your guys' thoughts on that one? That's a wild one. That's definitely the most wild one I've heard in a long time. But, uh, yeah. So those are five bizarre disappearances. Thank you for listening to this episode on the Murder House Radio Show. I hope you have a good rest of your Friday or whenever you're listening to this. Please check out the social medias and the sources in the description below. Make sure you like, comment, and subscribe. And once you subscribe, hit the bell notification and select all to get all notifications if you're viewing on YouTube. And hit follow if you're listening on a podcasting platform. But until next episode, this is your host X, signing off. <laughs>